If you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52, and we'll be there starting in verse, um, verse 13 on through to all of chapter 53. Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, 12. In the midst of all of Isaiah's beautiful and transcendent and comforting passages, the fourth servant song of Isaiah 52 and 53 may be the most glorious of all. It not only illuminates the book of Isaiah and the promise of the Messiah, but it it connects us to the work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection and through his future return in a way few other Old Testament passages do. It's quoted directly seven times in the New Testament, but it's pas- this passage casts its shadow long and it shines its light brightly over the whole of Jesus's ministry and the overflow of the good news that he brings through his life and his death. If we wanted to spend our time today just tracing the fulfillment of the prophecies that Isaiah makes here regarding, to Je- regarding Jesus, that would be time well spent. It would bolster our, our faith. Or we could, we could consider how the New Testament authors understood these words, looking at those seven passages and trying to understand what they thought about Isaiah 53. Or if, if we wanted to, we could all join forces and we could scour the testimonies of church history and see how often this text has been the key text to the salvation of many with the Ethiopian eunuch of, of Acts 8 being the first, at least the first that we know of. I just, in fact, heard a, a testimony from a friend this week whose uncertainty about the reliability of Scripture was, was shattered by the clarity of the prophecy in, in this passage. So as I think my tendency is with transcendent texts like this one, I'm trying to pave the way to say, we will not today, nor could we ever mine out all of the gold that is in this song. But I pray that we will all walk away holding at least part of the treasure that's hidden in these 15 verses. And I think that the treasure could, in some ways, shine more brightly because of all of the work that we have done in Isaiah up to this point. We have been with Isaiah and we've been with Israel seeing our need of rescue from exile alongside our tendency uh, to let Babylon and all of its pride fill our hearts. We've been asking the question from the very beginning all the way back in chapter one, how can unholy and unfaithful Jerusalem become the holy and faithful city of God? And in that we're also wondering how can we, an unfaithful people, How can we become more faithful children of God? We've heard the calls to listen. We've heard all these calls from Isaiah to trust the Lord, even when he appears absent, or even when when his ways don't make sense to us. And after all of this buildup and all of this tension, wondering how God will fulfill all of these things that he has promised, promised, we are ready for the wonder of this message and the reality that it is the Messiah that will bring about all of these things. And so this is the message I would say of this fourth servant song. Behold the surprising work of the servant who suffers for us and is exalted by the Father. Behold, behold the surprising work of the servant who suffers for us 
and is exalted by the Father. Much like the, the vision of Isaiah 6, where we step back and behold the glory of God, here also I think we are invited to behold the work of the servant, a, a surprising work, a work done on, on our behalf, and a work that leads us, that, that leads him from humility through suffering and into eternal exaltation. Like going to an art museum and, and standing before a huge canvas that holds a, a masterpiece. We're invited to sort of take a few steps back and try to, to take in all of the grandeur and all of the wonder and all of the surprise of what God has done and of what God is still doing and what God will do through his servant, through Jesus, the Messiah. Or instead of a, a painting, you might think about a winding trail if you've ever gone hiking and all those switchbacks and you never know what's coming around the next turn and then all of a sudden you, you round the corner and you see a waterfall that you never expected to see. That could be in some ways what Isaiah 53 is like. This just refreshing thing that, that surprises us. And for we who have taken the trail to the waterfall of Isaiah 53 many times, maybe the Lord in his kindness would let us see it with fresh eyes today, that we would hear its roar that we would feel the refreshing spray of the water as if for the first time, that we would behold the surprising work of the servant who suffers for us and is exalted by the Father. A masterpiece is a good way to think about this passage, I think, because we shouldn't miss the fact that, that this song is a, a work of divinely inspired and breathtaking poetry. It breaks down into five stanzas, each made up of three verses in our Bible, so it's easy to follow in that sense. And these five stanzas, as you look at them, they can be viewed as a chiasm, which basically means that stanzas one and five, the beginning and the end, they correspond to each other. Stanzas two and four, they correspond to each other. And that leaves stanza three right in the middle as the key focus of this poem. And yet there are also themes that are woven in and out of this song, hinting at and revealing and emphasizing the wonder of the servant in his work. Unlike the second and the third servant songs, the servant doesn't actually speak in this song. He doesn't say anything. Rather, it's witnesses of him that speak about his life. In the first and the fifth, it's the Lord himself who speaks about the servant. And in those middle three, the, the faithful remnant, the ones in Israel who have stayed faithful to the Lord amidst all the difficulty of exile, they are the ones who speak of who he is and of, the divinely, and of their divinely inspired understanding of what he is going to do. So as we said, uh, the first stanza of chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, in that God is the witness. And the first stanza gives us a summary of the song as a whole. And so let's read just these three verses. Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. God's word says, and God himself as the witness says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. The Lord says of, of the servant that he's going to act wisely. 
his wisdom will be on display in all that he does. And that wisdom seems to be directly related to the fact that he's going to be exalted. He's going to be lifted up. All that he does will be shown to be glorious and wise. So he will be worshipped as one who is full of glory and full of wisdom. But verse 14 is also clear that he's going to suffer. His wisdom is not the only thing that will astonish us. His suffering will be astonishing. His suffering will, in fact, be disturbing, it seems. It will be so brutal that he will hardly resemble a human being when sinful humans are done beating his body and breaking it just as Jesus broke the Passover bread hours before he was crucified. And yet this combination of wisdom and suffering will in fact cause the nations to revere him and it will cause kings to shut their mouths at him as they they seek to grasp the mystery and the surprise of his words and his work. His work almost seems priestly as he sprinkles many nations and makes them holy through faith in him. He makes them righteous through the sprinkling of his blood. As we said, this first stanza summarizes the main themes of the entire song. And I think it says at least three things to us about the servant. It says the servant will be exalted, the servant will suffer, and the servant will surprise the world. (laughs) The servant will be exalted, he will suffer, and he will surprise everyone. From this summary, the song goes on to describe the servant's suffering, but it also seeks to make sense of that suffering. And as clarity comes to those who witness the servant in his work, there is still astonishment and surprise at God's ways, but we're also led to see the wonder and the beauty of God's work through the servant. And we are led to a place of exaltation, wherein we crown the servant with the glory and the honor that he deserves. And so with each stanza, we're invited to see that the servant will be exalted, the servant will suffer, and the servant will surprise. And so we're going to see those themes woven throughout the rest of the, of the song. And in all of this, again, we're called to behold the surprising work of the servant who suffers for us and is exalted by the Father. So move on to the next stanza. It's found there in Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. You might summarize this stanza, one through three, with these words, despised and rejected. Despised and rejected. Look with me at Isaiah 53, verses one through three. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The Apostle John actually helps us to understand the meaning of these first two lines in verse 1. In chapter 12 of John's gospel, he notes that while Jesus had done many signs before him, before them, the, the people st- still didn't believe in him. And then John says this in John chapter 12, verses, verse 38, he says that the reason for this was, quote, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So we find that 
that not only the, the prophecies about Jesus' suffering uh, were surprising, uh, or, or it wasn't just that, that Isaiah was predicting the suffering, but also Isaiah was predicting the Messiah's rejection by those that he came to save. We've been hearing, you remember in Isaiah, about the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord is going to come and save and rescue and redeem his people. But when the arm of the Lord arrives through this surprising suffering servant, no one recognizes it. No one sees it as the arm of the Lord. No one sees Jesus as the arm of the Lord. In fact, they despise and they reject him, just as we all do in our sin. In part, it seems that this was because of how ordinary Jesus was. I've heard it said that these verses are probably the only description of Jesus' physical appearance that we have. And they basically say that Jesus was not attractive. His early days showed promise. He had potential like a young plant. But as the years settled in on him, he was more like the homeless man that we see on the street than like the Hollywood actor that we see on the screen in depictions of Jesus in his life and ministry. Think about it like this. In the high school yearbook, Jesus was not voted most handsome or most popular or most likely to succeed. Like many of us, he had one picture in the school yearbook. It was the one that was required by the school. But he wasn't esteemed. He wasn't admired by people. He was, in fact, the opposite. He was passed by. He was looked down upon. When people saw Jesus on the street, they made an effort not to make eye contact with him. And so he was intimately familiar, we're told, with pain and with, with heartache. We start to see more and more truth to what the author of Hebrews wrote, that Jesus is not a high priest who has no clue what we go through, but he is one who has been tempted and tried in all of the ways that we have, and yet without sin. We, we who feel very ordinary, we who feel rejected very often, we who often grieve, we who are overwhelmed by sorrow in life, we have a Savior who understands all of that. He was one who knew the weight of the world, who understood grief and suffering. And that knowledge and experience marked every part of who he was. Philip Bliss catches the surprise of all of this in his hymn when he writes, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came to save us. Man of Sorrows, that's the name for the Messiah? And so the surprise of the servant is not in how astonishingly attractive he was, but in how despised and how rejected he was, how familiar he was with the pain and the grief of this life. He was not born to royalty and shielded from sorrow. He was born in poverty, and he knew all of the difficulty and the rejection inherent in that. And it was his rejection that led to his suffering, a, a suffering that, simply, that wasn't simply the result of living in a fallen world. It was a suffering that was inflicted upon him, there was violence enacted on him by, all, by the hands of these people who despised and hated him. In the third stanza, verses four through six, at the heart of the song, we see that Jesus then was pierced for our healing. I put those words to summarize verses four through six, though they can't be summarized. Pierced for our healing. Hear these words, Isaiah 53, verses four through six. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, the bare fact that Jesus suffered doesn't make him unique in world history. Suffering is something that makes him, in fact, very ordinary. Thoreau hit on something very true when he wrote this, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Or as Wesley says in The Princess Bride, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says different is selling something. <laughs> the wisdom and, and wonder and surprise of the servant's suffering then is, not, is, is only partly found in the fact that it happened. The deeper mystery, the, the awe-inspiring reality is that the servant suffered for others, that, that he bore our griefs, that he carried our sorrows, that the pummeling of his body beyond human recognition was not something that he earned through his own sin, but something that he willingly took on for the sake of his sheep who have gone astray and turned to our own selfish ways. All men and women suffer in this life, every single one, but there's only one man who has suffered for the sins of all humanity. If this third stanza stands at the center of the song, then verse five is actually dead center. And it's here at the heart of this song that we find the deepest surprise of all. As we've said, it's not just that the servant will suffer, but that he will suffer on behalf of others. In fact, the witnesses that are speaking in these verses realize that he will suffer on their behalf. He will bear our griefs and our sorrows, he will be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Barry Webb writes this, it's as though while they speak together, each makes his or her own confession. I have transgressed. The sacrifice was for me. And by their own confession, they show the way to others. The message of this fourth servant song is for transgressors everywhere. All they have to do is admit that that is what they are. And so we who by God's grace admit that we are transgressors, we sing together, behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers because why? It was my sin that held him there. It was our sin that he was pierced for. It was our transgressions that crushed him. And no one is exempt from that title. No one is exempt from the title sinner. No one is exempt from the title transgressor. Verse six is very clear. Who has turned away? All have turned away. As Israel sat in exile, the faithful remnant knew that their nation had sinned, but they also knew that each individual, no matter how faithful, had wandered from the Lord. We are all lost sheep in need of rescue, and no person is more lost than another. Therefore, we are all in need of forgiveness. And so the Lord has sent the servant and willingly placed on him the iniquity of all of us. We're taken back to those two cups from last Sunday. 
and the choice to face the wrath of God against our sin on our own and be eternally condemned and consumed or to take up the empty cup, to take up the cup of God's wrath that Jesus drank for us through his suffering. The cup of the new covenant filled with the the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from our sins. And the heart of this song is the heart of the gospel that Jesus was crucified, pierced in his hands and feet and side, crushed by the blows of the soldiers, wounded by the whip against his back, bearing the wrath of God for the sins of the world. Jesus died for us, for our sins, because there was no sin in him. So that when we, by faith, say with the witnesses, I have transgressed, the sacrifice was for me. When we say that, we are forgiven. The shocking news of the, servant, of the suffering servant is the good news that brings us hope. He was pierced, but he was pierced for our healing. There's more about the suffering that the servant endured on our behalf in verses seven through nine. And here we see that he was afflicted but silent. Afflicted but silent. Isaiah 53 verses seven through nine. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The uniqueness of the suffering of the Son of God is not only the fact that he suffered and the fact that he suffered for others, but also the way in which he suffered, his response to the suffering that he faced. We might think about how we respond to pain and suffering in life, to injustice or inconvenience, to a difficult assignment in school or to a seemingly impossible deadline at work. Or the, or the way we respond when others mock and mistreat us. How do, we, how do we deal with inconvenience? How do we deal with long lines or traffic or being a little bit hungry? How do we handle the responsibilities we have, our chores and our housework? How do we handle chronic pain or the pressures of life? How do we deal with sickness, sorrow, pain, death? Very often, if we're honest, we respond with anger. We respond with frustration. We get mad and we do everything we can to get out of difficulty as fast as possible. And if we can't get out of it, we complain and we talk bad about others to friends that we hope are sympathetic with our cause. Or we mock and make fun of those who are responsible for our suffering. Or we mock and make fun of those who mock and make fun of us. We often speak about the innocent suffering unjustly. And while we might try to convince ourselves that we fall into that category, There was never a person who suffered more unjustly than Jesus. And while we've already spoken of his death, it's here in these stanzas that it actually becomes clear that the servant is not only going to suffer, but that he's going to die. The one sent to save his people will be killed. He's going to be cut off 
from the land of the living, verse 8. And he would be buried in a mysterious way in the borrowed tomb of a rich man, verse 9. What a specific prophecy for Isaiah to give. And yet again, it's clear that the, the Lamb of God is innocent as the stanza ends, emphasizing that he had done nothing violent, nor had he lied. He'd never been deceitful. So how's the servant going to react? How is the only innocent man ever to live going to react? How did Jesus respond when he was unjustly oppressed and afflicted, when he was beaten and crucified for the sins of other people because he himself had never sinned? We're told that he was silent. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, which surely recalls the Passover lamb who died for the sake of others and surely points forward to the, the words of John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God didn't lash out. He didn't fight back. He was quiet before Pilate. His words from the cross, they weren't shouts of anger. What were they? He lovingly cared for his mother. He offered forgiveness for his enemies. He faithfully entrusted his spirit into the hands of his father. How different Jesus is in the midst of suffering and pain than we often are. The suffering of Jesus was on our behalf. He, he died for our sins. But the way he died and the way he suffered gives us an example that we are to follow. This is what Peter is saying in those words in 1 Peter that we opened our service with that we just keep coming back to. And so hear them again from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, because I think these are probably the most divinely inspired application of Isaiah, one of at least of the best applications of Isaiah 53 that we can find. There's no way that Peter did not have Isaiah 53 in the back of his mind when he wrote these words in 1 Peter 2. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit, credit, it, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Brothers and sisters, what would it look like if we followed Jesus on this path of silently suffering unjustly in this world, of being afflicted but not striking back, of being mocked and then choosing not to mock in return. What, are we call, what we are called to day in and day out as followers of Jesus, the suffering servant, is to be afflicted and not open our mouth to not assert our perceived rights, to choose to be wronged 
for the good of others. And this is how we change the world. Because this is how Jesus changed the world. This is how we model the gospel that can turn unholy Jerusalem into the holy city. The gospel of Jesus that can make sinners like you and me sons and daughters of God. I am fearful that much of Christianity, American Christianity in particular, has lost the spirit of Jesus that is described here. That we have traded it for a a faith that fights for perceived rights and places love of self above love of neighbor and love even for our enemies. Much of the church seems to be concerned about avoiding suffering and inconvenience and infringement on our personal liberties while we follow a Savior who willingly suffered unjustly, who was more than inconvenienced on a daily basis and who laid down his life and his rights for the good of others. The cross is a powerful symbol, but it is not a symbol of power. It is not something that we raise or we wear to symbolize standing up for ourselves. It's something we raise and we wear to remind ourselves to lay down our lives for others. And while the world often misunderstands the teachings of our Savior, it rightly seems strange to people outside of the church that followers of Jesus are often marked more by anger than grace, more by hatred than love, more by power than meekness, more by pride than humility, more by self-interest than service. In the words of James, brothers and sisters, this should not be so. This is not the Savior we have pledged our lives to. Jesus was despised and rejected. He was pierced for our healing. He was afflicted but silent. And as the Lord again speaks in witness to the servant, the final stanza says of all of this, it was the will of the Lord. Verses 10 through 12 tell us that all of this was not an accident, nor was it the will of man. It was the will of the Lord for this to happen. Look at verses 10 through 12 with me. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The final stanza, says Motyer, is like a reservoir into which flow all the main lines of thought developed throughout the poem. And so the three themes of this song are again here. The servant will be exalted the servant will suffer. The servant will surprise the world. The surprise here may be this emphasis on the fact that the suffering of the servant was the will of the Lord, that the sacrifice of Jesus was no accident, that the Father sent the Son to suffer and be the Savior of the world. His death was was voluntary, 
It was a sacrifice made in love with full knowledge of it, made in, in love for his children and out of a longing for the glory of God. And while it was sinful men who crucified, it, it crucified him, it was the will of the Lord to crush him so that we could be saved. In that crushing, we're reminded that Jesus was bearing our iniquities, but we're also told here that through his suffering, we can be counted righteous. Not only does, does, Jesus, does Jesus the servant bear our guilt, but he also offers us his righteousness so that, so that we can stand before God, not only as, as forgiven children, but as holy and righteous and pure saints. Because Jesus was not only crucified, but he was resurrected. A truth that's spoken of here in the fact that it says, he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. And so Paul says in Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And because of everything that the son has done, he is exalted. Like a king returning from war, he divides the spoil and his exaltation is tied directly to his substitutionary death. He is exalted because he died on our behalf. Consider these, those last four lines of the song. He poured out his soul to death. What a phrase. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Brothers and sisters, behold the surprising work of the servant who suffers for us, who suffers for you, suffers for me, and is therefore exalted by the Father. Behold the servant, Jesus, the Messiah, who has laid down his life for our salvation and been raised for our justification. The will of the Lord was that Jesus be despised and rejected. The will of the Lord was that Jesus would be pierced for our healing, that he would be afflicted and yet silent and therefore that he would be exalted and his name would be above every other name. The will of the Lord was to send Jesus to save you and to save me. And it's this Jesus that we remember every time we take the Lord's Supper. I told some folks on Thursday evening at our prayer time that as a child I can remember, or I guess I should say as a, a young adult, I remember every time we took the Lord's Supper, I read Isaiah 53. We were a traditional Baptist church. That probably happened about four times a year. And so I made sure that I was in Isaiah 53 every time. And so I had no, I had no way to think about preaching Isaiah 53 and not saying we end with the Lord's Supper. And so we want to take time to remember Jesus, to remember what he has done for us in this surprising work where he suffers on our behalf, where his body is broken for us and his blood is shed for us.